I'm Candice Lim, and you're listening to ICYMI. In case you missed it, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And this was the week of Justin Timberlake attempting a comeback. Jennifer Lopez producing a Bob the Builder movie at Mattel. Will this be like her like Hustlers Redemption? And Dev Patel returning to the big screen because he is starring in and directing his first film. It's called Monkey Man. It's produced by Jordan Peele. And let me tell you something, I will be sitting in a theater with a Coca-Cola icy on my left and an AMC A-list stubs card on my right because Dev Patel girlies, we're back. So on today's episode, we're going to talk about a phenomenon you've seen and probably lived with for your entire internet life, and it's called video essays. Now, video essays are kind of the bread and butter of YouTube, along with like prank videos and babies named Charlie. These are anywhere from 30 minutes to three hour long videos where someone will sit in their room and speak straight to camera about anything from why we keep retelling Persephone's story to an excruciatingly deep dive into the Avatar theme park to the failure of Victorious. That video, by the way, is five and a half hours long. I am so serious. It is longer than The Irishman. I think the video essays of today tend to feel kind of academic. You know, they're citing their sources. They're pulling up the JSTOR articles. They are referencing other video essays. And to me, this feels like school. This feels like being in a lecture or Zoom school. And I think that's what kind of intrigues me, you know, that there's this hunger for brain food that simulates learning, but feeds it to you in this more like approachable peer-to-peer way. And so... I want to know more about these video essays and why they're so prevalent. And I'm going to do that today with Anissa Khalifa, the host of The Broadside from WUNC. We're going to dissect the categories and phases of the video essay and ask why, for some people, these videos are replacing books. I'll be back with Anissa after a quick break. Hey there. If you love our podcast, then maybe you should consider subscribing to Slate Plus. With Slate Plus, there are no ads on any Slate podcasts. And Slate Plus helps keep this podcast going because this show would not be possible without your support. With Slate Plus, you'll get bonus segments and episodes for shows like Dear Prudence, Amicus, and Slate Money. You'll also never hit a paywall on the Slate website, meaning you get access to every article and every advice column. Just visit slate.com slash ICYMI plus to sign up. That's slate.com slash ICYMI plus. And we're back. Joining me today is a podcast producer and host of The Broadside at WUNC North Carolina Public Radio, a weekly show about stories rooted in the South. She also makes indie podcasts like Dramas Over Flowers and Muslim in Plain Sight. It's Anissa Khalifa. Hello, Anissa. Hi, Candace. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my God. Anissa, I'm so excited because this is your first time on the show, and therefore I must ask you the question we ask all first-time guests, which is... What is your first internet memory? Yeah, 
I came prepared. <laughs> I was ready. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was the late 90s. Um, I was not allowed to use chat rooms, mm. but I went over to my friend's house and she was like, let's go on the internet. Let's go to a chat room. So we were here. We were like 10 or 11 years old. We were pretending to be much older than we were. We, do you remember that whole thing way back when chat rooms started where people would do that like ASL thing? Yes. Age, sex, location. So we would make up like a whole fantasy life for ourselves, where we were, what we looked like. We were doing dangerous things, but we didn't we didn't know it. We all have that little catfish within us. Can I can I right. say that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> now, Anissa, I'm so excited because today we are talking about video essays, which is something you love and you're passionate about, but you have very good critiques and analysis of this genre, let's say. I want to start off, if you are someone who just bought a new laptop and your YouTube algorithm has not figured out who you are yet, how would you describe what a video essay is to this person? So there are different kinds of video essays, right? There's sort of the the one where you don't really see the person behind the camera. They're just showing you the thing that they're talking about. That's not really the genre that I'm talking about here. Basically, there are these, you know, usually a millennial, thin conventionally attractive. Many of them are women. And they go on these like super long deep dives. Sometimes they're like multiple hours and they basically go into like a specific topic. So the categories that I break it down is into is pop culture. So like whether that's films, books, musicals. In the past couple of months, I have fully re-entered my Hunger Games era. I've regressed back to my 14-year-old self and I can't think, talk, write, read, or consume any content that is not related to The Hunger Games or The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. And then the second one is sociocultural commentary. So they'll talk about like issues of the day, particular issues regarding like feminism or, you know, culture, racism, that kind of stuff. Let's talk about nostalgia. Today, I specifically want to dig into millennial nostalgia bait and child star confessionals. And then the third one is these like extremely specific deep dives into internet rabbit holes. If you were on the internet from about 2011 to maybe 2015 and had even a passing interest in something like Doctor Who or the Avengers, you were probably subject to the cultural titan that was a now booming geek culture. And I feel like it becomes almost a brand in itself, like that person becomes the brand, but they're not selling themselves or they're not making themselves a brand in a way that like previous generations of vloggers did where you were literally watching them live their life, do hijinks and antics. But it's still a relationship that you have with that person, but it's more about like what they have to say and their like extremely nerdy analysis. Yeah. And I think my first reaction to video essays were like, okay, these are long, sometimes hours long videos on YouTube. It's someone usually talking straight to camera with a microphone, talking about any topic that intrigues them. And I think when I use this description, it makes it seem like video essays are not new because you could argue that like Grace Helbig and Lily Singh and Dan and Phil were also doing video essays before we use that name. And so what do you think is different about the video essays you're describing? What is the difference between those videos and the ones of, let's say, like the early 2010s? Yeah, I think they're similar in the sense that you are forming a parasocial relationship. I know that everyone hates that word now because we've used it so much, but you are forming a parasocial relationship with this person and you are in their space, right? You're in their room and they're talking directly to the camera. So in that sense, it is very similar, but I think the biggest difference is how in-depth these videos are. And also they show you the receipts, they show you their work. 
a lot of these people are looking up journal articles about this topic. You know, they're doing deep research. For people who do internet rabbit hole videos, they're making an argument and then they're bringing you all of the supporting evidence to prove that argument. And so I think that's like a big difference between these video essays and those video essay vlog type things that we had in the past. Yeah, I think vlog is the keyword here of like Lily Singh would just be like, here are 10 things my parents say. And she doesn't need to bring up JSTOR articles. Her lived experience is the JSTOR article. But there is something kind of like academic to these video essays that I want to get into a little bit later. But I want to ask about you personally, Anissa. Like, what was your entrance into the video essay ecosystem? Do you like remember maybe some of the first ones you watched? Yeah, I think probably the earliest ones that I watched and kind of like followed over time were Lindsay Ellis's videos. Um, if you recall, or if you ever watched the Nostalgia Critic videos back in the day, it was this white guy with kind of a whiny voice. He called himself the Nostalgia Critic. And he would just talk about like TV shows and movies and like a lot of stuff that we grew up with. Hard to believe it's been 30 years since this comedy blockbuster came out. Mrs. Doubtfire is one of those movies that should be formulaic and gimmicky and... Yeah, okay, it is, but it also added some new elements, both comedically and dramatically, that helped it stand out. That was kind of that millennial nostalgia content, and she started out working on his team, um, and some stuff came out later about how that was not a good experience for her, um, and she ended up leaving him and starting her own channel. She came at it from a very, like, cultural studies angle, and I love that, and she would talk about, like, movies and um, books and shows. And then she would just go on this like really deep dive. She even made this like documentary about the Hobbit trilogy, which she called a duology, but it actually ended up having three parts. So it was like part one of two, part two of two, part three of two, which is like a very deliberate reference to the fact that the Hobbit movies were supposed to be two and they ended up being three. The Hobbit was published 20 years before The Lord of the Rings was published, and itself had to be reissued to fit with the new version of Middle-earth Tolkien created, and even still is tonally a completely different animal from The Lord of the Rings. Meanwhile, The Hobbit movies have the opposite problem, billed as prequels to movies that had come out a decade prior. Add into this the popularity of all parties involved. The Hobbit is one of the best-selling books of all time. And it's just like this incredible deep dive into, like, what happened behind the scenes of the Hobbit movies and why they're so bad and how they basically like ruined the film industry in New Zealand and like caused a lot of harm to the people who live there. But I think she was the first one where I, I watched her video essays and I was like, ooh, this is what I want. But it was a different type of content that really like fed my brain in a way that I enjoyed a lot. And so I've just been kind of a video essay person for a while now. Yeah, I would maybe even argue that everyone at some point has been a video essay person. It just depends on when, because if we're, you know, maybe breaking up the eras into like Lily Singh, Wong Fu, that's the like vlog-ish era, mm. sliding into the Dan and Phil and maybe even the British YouTubers and then sliding <laughs> into Lindsay Ellis. You know, Lindsay Ellis was making video essays six, five, four years ago. That's pre-pandemic. And so there's something about Lindsay being like the harbinger, the OG video essay person that I think is very important to talk about. And she did recently come back to do a video that's very video essay style. And so I wanted to ask, is there any point when you were like, oh, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let, let, let's fact check some of these articles real quick. Yeah, I think there's definitely a spectrum when it comes to um, the claims that people are making and mm. The sources that they're using. And I think the video essayists that I respect the most and whose content I enjoy the most have an ability to like 
A, show you exactly where their information is coming from. So, you know, if they are quoting an article, they'll like put that article up on the page and you can see the title of the article and the author and where it was published. So you can go find that. They're backing up their research. Oh, they'll talk about a journal article and they'll tell you the name of the journal article and you can find it. And then there are others who just make claims. And I think like with cultural criticism, it's kind of muddy in the sense like a lot of it is your opinion and your own analysis and that's totally fine. But at the same time, I think like because as a video essayist, over time you develop a relationship with your audience of trust. I think you have to be careful not to make claims that are not really fact-checked. Uh, and I think mm -hmm. like part of build, even building that trust with them is to always show your work. And so I think like the best of them do do that. Exactly. I think something I'm also realizing is when you brought up citing articles, throwing up HuffPo link on the screen, are video essays not just last week tonight with John Oliver or Hassan Minaj's Patriot Act? Like, aren't those actually just like Netflix versions of video essays? Mm, yeah. Yeah. That format of video essay definitely probably started with the days of Lindsay Ellis. And then maybe along the way, The Daily Show, John Oliver, Hassan Minaj saw that and was like, let's bring that to the TV. Let's get like Emmy winning researchers, producers and writers behind it. Let's blow up these visuals. And I wonder if that has now transferred back to YouTube, where now a younger generation is looking at that and being like, oh, my God, I could do that, especially when Patriot Act is not on the air anymore, especially when like The Daily Show can't find a new host. Maybe that's what it is, where it's like the voice people want to hear from is like online. Yeah. And I think it's also shown that there was like a hunger for that kind of content. And then last week tonight and Patriot Act kind of like saw that need and were like, oh, we can make something like this. People will actually watch it. And then those are so successful. And then now again, like there's even more people who are making these video essays because they're like, oh, people actually want this um, because it's not an obvious thing that if you make this extremely nerdy, almost academic two and a half hour video where you're just talking to the camera and like laying out a college essay, but it's yeah. not as boring and it's not an academic language. Like It's not an obvious thing that that's actually going to appeal to people and that people will spend two and a half hours or an hour or even like 40 minutes watching you do something like that. But it's so popular. Yeah. And let's take a short break, but when we come back, I'll ask Anissa whether video essays are affecting media literacy and whether the YouTube comment section is the new space for nuance online. And we're back. This may be slightly parasocial element that is kind of entering the video essay space, meaning these people are making academic hours long videos in their rooms and they're not really talking about themselves. They're talking about like, you know, topics like the Hunger Games. And yet what people seem to latch onto is the person disseminating the information. It's very like professory in a way. And so I wanted to ask you, who do you feel like is gaining the most success from these videos? Like who do you think seems to be getting the most likes and views and comments? Honestly, if I can be frank, white women. <laughs> yeah. 
Yep. Uh, you know, there are definitely YouTubers of color. Lee Bo is one of them. Um, but I definitely see more of them being young looking, attractive looking white women who mm-hmm. are thin. I was trying to think about why it is this particular type of person or this yeah. aesthetic on screen that appeals to people. And I think it's because they come across as like non-threatening, but still trustworthy. Oh. So you have the trustworthiness and authority that has, is like encoded in whiteness. Mm-hmm. But then if they're mostly women, I don't know, it's like somehow easier to digest. And all these people are college educated, which I think comes into class. They have enough financial means to at least have, you know, a private space that looks nice on camera where they can film. It's not too noisy for them. They don't have family members, so many family members living with them that they can't carve out that time and space. They can do this as a job. They have enough yeah. room in their lives to do mm-hmm. that. So I think there's also that class element. That is super interesting because something I did want to note is that like these video essays and these creators may have started it out with a very, let's say, innocent purpose of just like, I just want to put some information out there. I just want to go on some rants about stuff I love. However, I am not a lecture person. It's just not my style of learning. And yet I just feel like these video essays are not that different from like a TA standing in front of a classroom, pontificating about the troubles. I mean, what do you think makes these video essays more compelling and consumable to a Gen Z millennial audience than let's say like an in-person college course? Hmm. Well, you can pause it. You can listen to it you know, whenever you want. And even with, you know, the citations and everything, you can pause and read the citation. So I feel like it kind of gives you more agency of like, A, how you want to consume it. Like you can just put it on while you're folding your laundry and not really watch and you will still gain, you know, the majority of like what the argument is, the basis of what this person is saying. And you're just like, yeah, I trust this person's citations. Or you can actually like watch it in a really intense way pause when you get to the sources read all the quotes um i have been both of those people i'll be honest um and but it's like you can kind of like chunk it if you want to or you can just watch the whole thing in one go you don't have to be physically in the space of that lecture you're kind of consuming it on your own terms in your own space at a time when you feel mentally ready for it and i think also it provides us with a kind of knowledge that unless you had just a really wonderful college experience Many of us did not get to learn about the things that we actually love and are interested in and or actually relate to our lived experience. Whereas a lot Mm -hmm. of these things, you know, because many of them are talking about Internet culture, which is a thing that like millennials and Gen Z's, that's our world, right? Yeah, (laughs) that's that's the water that we swim in. So it's talking about that. It's talking about pop culture. And with pop culture, I feel like these two generations, but particularly millennials, we kind of view the world through a lens of pop culture a lot of times. There's been a lot of memoirs that came out in 2023 of like people processing what is happening in life through the lens of pop culture. The one that comes, you know, on the top of my head is Aisha Harris, her memoir, Wannabe. And like, yeah. but there's been a few of those, right? And it's like, I think because it feels like our thing. Where, like, legacy media is not really controlled by people from our generation or who who kind of reflect a lot of our views and values. But we can see ourselves in pop culture in a way. And so we can use it as a lens to talk about a lot of the things that matter to us. Mm -hmm. I, I think also, like, life is so hard. Using the internet and pop culture to 
process things like the war and violence we see on the screen every day Mm -hmm. that's like actually happening in the world or the pandemic. There's a lot of very difficult things that we are trying to process and like putting them at a little bit of a remove by analyzing them through this lens, I think helps. Or having someone else explain it to us with examples and citations sometimes helps. Yeah, I agree, especially when there seems to be less and less space on public goods for nuanced and kind discourse, you know, especially with Twitter kind of being this like hot take factory. I mean, even in our own industry, layoffs, Mm -hmm. very big deal still happening. And I think this is where I want to ask about media literacy a bit, because we could have this discussion about whether media literacy has gotten worse with the closing of legitimate journalism institutions, or maybe that the ability for anyone to buy a microphone and a camera has made people confuse trust for credibility. I wanted to ask you, what do you think people are trying to get out of these video essays? Like, is it just a vlog to them? Is it a free TV show? Is there some desire to replace something with these video essays? I think for a lot of people, it replaces books and their lives. I think also when you talk about media literacy, I wonder if the impetus to even create these videos is coming from that place of a sort of pushback against hot take culture and like the complete lack of nuance that we see on social media. Everything is in a short form these days. We live Mm -hmm. in a short form era of content. And these are so far in the other direction. It's like the extremely long form, the longest form of long form. And I Mm -hmm. wonder if that's a reaction to that of this feeling that, okay, I as a creator can make this space where I'm going to talk about something at length, taking in, you know, all of the perspectives trying to, you know, give myself and my viewers the space to really dig into it and explore it and have a nuanced consideration of this topic. And they usually, Mm -hmm. like, sort of anticipate, you know, counter arguments and all that. And then, like, the interesting thing is also, like, you have the video essay, and then often in the comments, you have these really long, like, essays replying to not only replying to the content of the video but often telling their own stories you have maybe like a video essay about a particular social issue a lot of the people in the comments will be sharing like yeah i agree with you and here's my experience with this this thing that happened to me they share a long post about their own experience or they'll say oh like this is really good that you're talking about this here's something that you missed that i think is really important and they'll give a long comment about that Mm -hmm. i think it's not only watching the content, but also having the space to engage with it, you know, more than 280 characters. So you're not just reply guying, but you're really engaging with what this person is saying and then sharing your own perspective. Can YouTube comments be extremely toxic? Absolutely. Like we know that the comments can be a bad place, but I think with this genre in particular, I haven't seen as much of that. It's almost been like a place of community, which is really nice. Yeah. I love this point because something that I kind of keep questioning about video essays are the format. You know, one of our producers, Daisy, kind of brought up that these video essays are so long and they're so winding that low key, could these just be written essays? You know, could these just be articles or even podcasts? And I think that that metaphor, that adjacency is pretty correct of like, 
these are podcasts in video form. However, if you were to listen to a podcast and you had something to say, where would you go? Like, where would you mm. go to make comments or have conversations without like literally adding the host and like trying to get their attention on Twitter? It's there is no community or space for that. And so I think the comment section of video essays is that space. And I can totally understand why someone would invest their time into just being a reply guy, but a nuanced reply guy in one person's comments for sure. Yeah. And there's also this, I've noticed um, in the last couple of years, there's almost this like network of video essayists and often yeah. they'll like cite each other or mention each other. They'll be like, I'm doing this video about this one topic. This one issue is going to come up. I'm going to touch on it quickly, but like you should go watch my friend's video about it. They mm -hmm. do a really great deep dive. It's almost like academics citing each other in their yeah. papers you know <laughs> like yeah but in a much less dry and boring way and i think there's also something about the anti-intellectualism that has sort of um engulfed us as a society mm. i think it's like a way of pushing back against that but also making that accessible to everyone you know acknowledging the fact that yes there are valid critiques of academia of it being, you know, sort of removed from society and not accessible to everyone and being elitist. Like it is that, but it also creates a lot of really important knowledge that helps us advance as a society. And these video essays are kind of like taking that knowledge that they gained or like the access that they gained or the, you know, the ability to think critically and argue your point that these people received from their educations. They're providing it almost like as a public service. Mm -hmm. In some ways, right? It creates a model of how to think critically about something that I think is really good for us. And it kind of divorces it from that, like, oh, you have to be in the ivory tower um, and you don't care about regular people or regular people's issues. Exactly. Because I think something that I've learned, especially from watching Sandra O's Netflix series, The Chair, is that academia is quite conservative, not even just politically, but also just in the gatekeepers that create barriers to access and syllabi <laughs> like the things that you want to learn you probably won't get to unless you demand it and ask for it that is in contrast to people of the same age in college who have like a genuine hunger for information and curiosity and they want to know more it's just that the places they're going aren't providing it for them so they're like well let me provide it myself give me the jstor keys and i'll help you get to where i want to go exactly. and in a weird way that actually makes me hopeful that makes me hopeful for the video essay but i did want to ask if there is anything that worries you about the content specifically doled out in these video essays because for me I feel like sometimes these can kind of begin to sound like unedited or unhinged rants. Like, you know, I've noticed several video essays that ask whether Emma Chamberlain should go to college. And sometimes I'm like, OK, is this like an actual question or is this just snark? And so I wanted to ask, do you think there's a shoe that's ever going to drop or is there maybe like a red flag you've already started noticing in this ecosystem? Yeah, I, I think the one thing that does concern me is that it kind of encourages this impulse from video essayists. I think it's not just limited to video essayists, but like for people who have established platforms, there's this impulse that they need to have a take about everything. And sometimes they don't need to talk about that particular thing. And sometimes talking about it is actually going to cause harm. Or, you know, like you're, maybe you're inserting yourself into a situation where you don't actually need to bring all of the combined 
power and attention of your like, you know, two million followers. An example of this that I thought of was Tiffany Ferg, who makes the social cultural analysis videos. And I really like her. I like her content a lot. I watch her videos. She usually does a great job. She made this one video. She does a series called Internet Analysis, and it was in that one. And she has a friend at Kath Out on TikTok, who basically was going to the gym and she kept seeing this person like write something funny on the whiteboard at the gym. And she like made a couple of TikToks, you know, asking people to help her find this person. Who wants to help me solve a little mystery? Okay, so at the gym I go to, there's this whiteboard. Anybody in the community can write on it. But the gym staff will always have a prompt, this one being, what are you listening to? And they change it out every couple of weeks, but no matter what the prompt is, somebody always finds a way to write the word monkey. And this was very amusing to me because I'm very attracted to commitment to the bit. Regardless, I'm going to keep the faith and update you all if anything else unfolds. Happy mystery solving. And I know y'all have thoughts and feelings about internet sleuthing on this podcast. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have thoughts and feelings about it too. But basically, Tiffany Ferg actually ended up uh, taking that video down and apologizing. And basically, she was saying that like, She got a lot of pushback and she also realized that like the fact that she made this video about something that her friend was doing on TikTok, like it kind of gave it a lot more oxygen um, Mm. and attention. And she was saying like, I'm glad that that person's identity was never actually discovered. But if they had been discovered, they didn't ask for that. You know, they're just writing a random thing on the whiteboard at the gym. And, And she was saying like, because that person who posted about it on TikTok is my friend, I feel like I didn't have a clear... Um, understanding of the this issue like I was biased and I think like that's the danger of not understanding you know how much influence you actually have there's an outsized perception of the importance of your opinion or your take paired with an underestimation of the impact of your platform mm-hmm. and I think that's a bad combination okay that's the show I want to thank Anissa Khalifa for joining me on today's episode. You can find more of Anissa's work at WUNC North Carolina Public Radio, where she's a podcast producer and the host of The Broadside, a weekly show about stories rooted in the South. She also makes indie podcasts like Muslim in Plain Sight. We'll be back in your feed on Wednesday, so definitely subscribe. That way, you never miss an episode. Leave us a rating and a review in Apple or Spotify and tell your friends about us. You can follow us on Twitter at ICYMI underscore pod. And you can always drop us a note at ICYMI at slate.com. ICYMI is produced by Sierra Spragley-Ricks, Rachel Hampton, and me, Candace Slim. Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer. And Alicia Montgomery is Slate's vice president of audio. See you online or in the duology of The Hobbit.